Good morning, church. You guys, you're going to need a bigger church really soon. That's awesome. You know, I've known Cody and Micah for about seven years now, I think it has been, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, and so over that course of time, I just want you to know that my wife, Amy, and I, we've been praying for you, for Cody and Micah and their kids and, and this church, and it's just so exciting to be here and see you guys, all these brothers and sisters in Christ that I've never met. This is the first time I'm meeting you. So it's great to see you. I think it would be cool since uh, Cody encouraged you to uh, follow in his footsteps that if next week all of you guys go to Cabo, and so when he comes back, all you guys are gone. You're all in Cabo, listening to your pastor. So yes, I'm Paul. He took like the first page of my, my sharing that I wanted to share with you in, in, what, in the introduction he was given there. But this is my wife, Amy. She's here with me today. Yes, she's awesome. And uh, we have three grown children. I think we'll get a picture. Oh, yeah, I love that picture. Those are my kids. Uh, two boys and a girl. They still live, as Cody shared, uh, we planted a church about 16 years ago in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and they still live there. And 16 years ago, we moved from California out to Louisiana, called by the Lord, didn't want to go, but knew that God was calling us to go, to go out there and, and plant a church. And so we did that and, and we planted the church and just like, I don't know how many of you guys have been here for a long time, but you know what that's like, a church growing from nothing and uh, it's exciting, but it's challenging at the same time. We were there for 16 years and then recently, God just put it on my heart in a powerful way that I was done. <laughs> that I finished the work that he called me there to do. There was a young man in our church that I had raised up in ministry for about 15 years. He was there almost that whole time. And he was my assistant pastor and God led me to turn the church over to him and then to come out here to Vail and, and go with uh, Nate Morris up at Mountain Life Calvary Chapel and team up with him and be his assistant pastor. Now, as I share that with you, you might be like, oh, that was probably a really hard decision, huh, Paul? to leave the swamplands of Louisiana and go to the Rocky Mountains. You probably really agonized over that. Well, I want you to know, I did, I did. It was a super difficult decision because see, we knew that, that our kids that we love, <laughs> they were gonna stay back there in Louisiana. They had lives there, they were going to school, they had jobs, they had friends, all of that. We knew that my parents who live in Baton Rouge, that they were going to stay there as well. So we knew coming here would be meaning to leave our family there, to leave our friendships that we had built there over the last 16 years, to leave this church that we birthed and, and planted there and, and saw it grow and, and sowed into and loved so dearly to leave that. And then to leave my role as a lead pastor and take a role as an assistant pastor. All of that was very difficult. It was difficult, sure, Vale, that sounded cool, I won't lie, but it was difficult. There was a lot of fear and uncertainty in that decision that we made to follow Jesus in what he was calling us to do. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to follow Jesus even in the face of fear and uncertainty? Have you experienced that before? In Mark chapter 10, verse 32, I think I discovered this verse. It wasn't in the Bible until just recently, but I discovered this verse a couple years ago, and it's amazing. I had never seen this before, but 
Mark 10, 32, it, talking about the, the people who were following Jesus in these days, it says, as they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. They were amazed at who Jesus was and what he was doing and where he was going and all of that. But they knew as they were going to Jerusalem that Jesus was a wanted man. He was wanted dead in Jerusalem. And so then the next sentence, it says, and as they followed, they were afraid. Isn't that amazing that in that one verse, you have a description of what it means to follow Jesus. <laughs> at times, it's amazing to follow Jesus. As you follow him into what he's calling you to in your life, in your family, in your situations, in your friendships, it can be amazing as you watch him and go, man, he is incredible. And following him is just the most amazing thing. But then there's the next sentence, right? <laughs> the day turns and all of a sudden, it becomes very scary to follow Jesus. And there's fear and there's uncertainty involved in that. Look, it's easy to follow Jesus when things are amazing, but it's difficult to follow Jesus when things get scary, when you become afraid. This morning, I wanna share with you a little bit about this subject of fear and uncertainty. I feel like I have become kind of an experiential expert on the topic of fear. Did you know that in the United States, the number one fear is public speaking? <laughs> it's true. If I asked you to come up here right now and give a 30-minute message, you know, the heart would start pounding, you know, cotton mouth would kick in, and, and, and the people are so afraid of speaking in front of other people. Well, I've been doing that for over 30 years now. And so I understand that. And even right now, you know, getting in front of a new crowd, there's always a little bit of fear involved in that. And so that's the number one fear. The number two fear in the United States is going into your doctor's office and hearing them say, you have cancer. Well, in October of 2014, I was being treated for a sinus infection that was not going away. I'm sorry. I've shared this a million times, but still. I, the doctor was doing tests and, and he did a scope and he said, you know, I, I see some polyps and it's no big deal that he said he'd been doing this for 35 years, but that he would take a little biopsy to make sure that it was nothing. He said, you might need a little outpatient surgery, very minor, no big deal. I went back a week later to get the results of the tests and I was told those words. He came into the office and he said, you have cancer. He said that he didn't know what kind of cancer, the pathology lab didn't know what kind of cancer this was. They couldn't figure it out. And so they were going to send me to a specialist to figure out what it was. And so I went to a specialist and had a lot more tests done. And they discovered that I had something called sinonasal undifferentiated carcinoma. They give it the acronym SNUC, SNUC. And they said it's appropriate because this type of cancer sneaks up on you. It comes out of nowhere. The tumor grows very quickly. It's very aggressive. It's incredibly rare, but it's also incredibly deadly. I was told at this point I had a tumor inside my sinuses that was larger than a baseball, that 
It had destroyed the wall between my sinuses and my eye socket, and the tumor had wrapped around my optic nerve behind my left eye. It was pushing my eyeball. You could see physically it was pushing my eyeball off to the side. It had also destroyed the dural lining to my brain and was attacking my brain. And this tumor was touching my cortex and my carotid artery. And I was told by the specialist that they had very little information about this type of cancer and they had no idea how to treat this type of cancer. So she was going to have to uh, go to what is called a tumor board and discuss this with other specialists to try and figure out what to do. And I left her office that day and I went out and I sat in my car. I'm sorry. And I prayed. And I didn't pray that I was going to survive this cancer because that seemed very unlikely. I remember praying that God would care for my wife and children after I died. And that when I went home and shared this news with them, that they would be strong and be able to handle this. I, I want you to know God answered that prayer. My family was strong. And after I shared with them, we prepared to face this battle. Now, believe it or not, the, the specialist, she told me that they had such little information about this type of cancer that I should go home and Google it to find out more information. <laughs> and so I did. I went home, I Googled it, and this is what I found out from the Journal of Natural Science, Biology, and Medicine. It said, despite aggressive therapy, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, outcome has remained dismal, with the average survival time being less than one year after diagnosis. And that night, my doctor called and I told her that I Googled it, and this is what I discovered, and I asked her, is this true? Is this accurate? And she said, I'm afraid it is. And so the clock started ticking. I had less than a year to live. And I remember experiencing a very real sense of fear. Well, the doctors decided to try treatment anyway, and so a few days later, we went and we met with a surgeon. He's one of the only surgeons in the world that has dealt with this type of cancer, and he happened to be just two miles from our house, praise God. <laughs> we went and we saw him, and he laid out the, the surgery plan. He said, I'm gonna try and do it endoscopically, which means going up through your nasal cavity to try and remove the tumor that way, and then patch up the, the lining the eye socket into the brain, all the, doing that endoscopically. He said, but it's a very slim chance I'll be able to do that. I'll probably have to do what they called lift the hood, which is they cut you from your ear across your forehead to your other ear, and they peel your scalp back, and they go down in that way. He said that the tumor had wrapped around my left optic nerve, which meant in order to get clear margin, he was going to have to remove my left eyeball. The tumor, he said, was touching the cortex, my cortex and carotid artery, and, and because of that, it was going to be a very touchy procedure to remove the tumor without damaging those things, and any slight mistake would certainly kill me. And because of the, the nature of the operation, he wanted a neurosurgeon involved in that part of the surgery. 
So he set up a, an appointment for us to go meet with the best neurosurgeon in our area the next day. He came in and very bluntly told us that this surgery could not be done without killing me. He called the other surgeon on his cell phone and he said, why did you send this guy to me right in front of us, believe it or not? Why did you send this guy to me? There's nothing I can do, I can't help him. And he refused to take part in this surgery. And we left his office, and as we left this his office, the reality was setting in. According to this guy, our best neurosurgeon in the area, there was no hope for me to survive this operation or this cancer. We had to go home, share this news with our kids. My oldest son, that you saw a picture of earlier there, he's a football player, he was in high school, very big, strong guy, and he just got up quietly, walked into his bedroom. <laughs> I could hear him in there crying, and I just went in, put my arm around him. We just cried together and, and prayed together. Man, I was experiencing a very real sense of fear. Well, we went back and we saw the original surgeon, and he remained positive. He was a stud. This guy's amazing. He said, he said, look, if that guy doesn't want to be part of the surgery, I will take care of it all myself. I'm like, all right, man, let's go. He lined out the treatment plan. He said, first, we we're going to do surgery. Then we we're going to do chemotherapy and radiation together. And the attitude, he was shot very straight with me. He was, he was very compassionate, but he was very honest. And he said that there's there's very little chance of survival, and so we're going to do everything we can. He said, we're going to treat you. We're going to bring you to the point of death, but we're not going to let you die. We're going to, he said, hang you over the edge of, the, of death by the scruff of your neck, and we're going to pull you back right before you die. And he said, the treatment is going to be so painful and difficult that you're going to wish that you were dead, but I'm not going to let you die, he told me. And that created a little bit of fear in itself. <laughs> the surgery date arrived. And I remember laying there in the bed as I was waiting for the anesthesia to kick in, thinking about the fact that this was such a touchy procedure that I, I might die in surgery. And these might be the, the last few minutes of my life. But God had a different plan. Do you know those two words? But God. <laughs> those two words can change any reality, but God. God had a different plan. I woke up after surgery and I discovered three things pretty quickly. Number one, I was alive. I didn't die in surgery. He was able to remove that tumor without killing me. Number two, I don't know if you've noticed already, but I still have two eyeballs. He was able to get that tumor and clear margin without having to take my left eye. And the third thing, that I realized was he was able to perform that whole surgery endoscopically. He didn't have to lift the hood. For eight hours, this man, he did this surgery. He went up through my nose, slicing the tumor, bringing it out, patching up. I was just talking to my wife about this morning. How did he do that? How did he patch up these, these holes in my head, doing that all? And he did that all endoscopically and didn't have to lift it. It's the first time in my life I was thankful for my big nose. I was like, <laughs> you know, as a teenager, I'd look in the mirror and go, oh, I hate this nose. And God's like, just wait. It's going to come in handy. You're going to be thankful. 
Well, the surgery was completed and that was a huge part of the process. Next came the chemotherapy and radiation. And we went and we saw a radiation specialist and he informed us that the radiation that I was gonna take to my head, it was going to destroy my left eye that my surgeon saved. And it was probably going to destroy my right eye as well, which would leave me completely blind after radiation. However, he told us that there was a, a really slight chance of something called proton radiation that was much more precise. But he said there were only a few places in the country that did it. It was super expensive and insurance just does not like to approve that. So we submitted it to our insurance and they denied it. We submitted it to our insurance again. They denied it again. And you're only allowed to appeal it twice with our insurance company. So we submitted it one more time. And as we waited to find out if I was going to be able to get that proton radiation, fear crept in. Because if they said no, I knew that that would probably mean that I would be blind after this treatment. But God, again, that, that second appeal went through and it was approved. And so the next part of the treatment was in place. Began the chemotherapy, and if you know or you've been through chemotherapy, you know what this is like. Experienced heavy side effects, lost my hair, anemic, fatigue, I couldn't eat. I lost 50 pounds in about two months. And then as that was going on, then the radiation began. The radiation created numerous painful issues, uh, burned the skin on my neck, my head. My eyes stopped producing tears, scratching my corneas, burning eyes. Uh, my eyesight has been really messed up from that. My saliva glands have, have been damaged. My, I wasn't producing any saliva, which created all of these sores in my mouth and my throat. And so then they prescribed a lot of pain medicine for me because I was dealing with so much pain. And then the pain medicine messed with my mind. And I was dealing with, with periods and episodes of, of heavy panic and, and anxiety. And man, I was struggling with fear fear and uncertainty. Well, after six months, the treatment was completed. They did multiple scans, full body scans and everything, and we received the news that I was completely cancer-free. <laughs> uh, gosh, this is hard. <laughs> God healed me. I'm, I am supposed to be dead, but I'm alive. I'm supposed to be blind, but I can see, I can't see great, but I can see. I can't taste or smell anymore, but, but you'd be surprised at how handy that comes in sometimes. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, did you smell that? I'm like, nope, no, I didn't, didn't at all. I spoke with my surgeon uh, just before we moved out here, and he asked me to share with him all of the difficulties that I'm currently going through, side effects from the treatment. And I was sharing with him all the different things. And I started to feel like I was whining and complaining. And I, and I said, Doctor, you, you are one of the only surgeons in the world that has dealt with this type of cancer in numerous patients. And he said, yeah, that's true. And I said, well, can I ask you, I said, how do I compare to your other patients? Like, how am I doing compared to them? And he paused and he looked at me and he said, Paul, they're all dead. He said, you are a miracle. And I believe that. I believe that God did a miracle, not that there's something special about me, 
but there's something special about our God. And I'm so thankful that God saved my life and left me here for a little bit longer. I agree that I'm a miracle, but I can remember as I went through that treatment, just struggling with great fear. And going through that process, the Lord taught me something that I'd like to share with you this morning, having to deal with fear. It's important that we understand that there are two types of fear. There's, an, there's a healthy fear. The scripture describes this as the fear of the Lord. And God's word tells us that that's the beginning of wisdom. That's, that's what leads us, most of us, have been led into a relationship with the Lord because of the fear of God. It's that beginning of a relationship. That's a healthy fear. But then there's another type of fear, an unhealthy fear. And I came across a great description of what this unhealthy fear is. It came from a, a famous prince. He was the, the fresh prince of Bel Air. <laughs> Seriously. Will Smith, in a movie he did called After Earth, had this comment. It's, this is amazing. Listen to this. He said, fear is not real. The only place that fear can exist is in our thoughts of the future. It is, fear is a, a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. That is near insanity. Do not misunderstand me. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice. Man, there's a lot of truth in that statement. Unhealthy fear is, is a belief or perspective on the future that may or may not be true, but it's not a reality. Well, we've heard from a, a famous prince. Let's hear from a famous king on this. David, king of Israel, had some thoughts on fear. In very famous psalm, Psalm 27, verse 1, David said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Who shall I be afraid? Man, wouldn't it be great to be like David and to have that perspective on life and say, who am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? How would your life be different? Just pause and think about this for a second. How would your life be different if you were free of fear? Fearlessness, it's, it's more than an attitude we work up. Does anybody remember the no fear line of clothing and bumper stickers? No? Nobody remembers that? Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Look, fearlessness isn't a sticker that you put on your big truck with your big wheels and everything saying, hey, I don't have any fear. No, 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 no. Fearlessness is actually a byproduct of an understanding, to understand a truth. David by the way, does anybody have a no fear bumper sticker on the back of their truck? Just, okay. I just was wondering if I offended anybody. David understood a truth that made him fearless. And he shared this truth with a Philistine giant named Goliath. I love this, these verses. In 1 Samuel 17, David, this is ancient smack talk, all right? This is awesome. He stands before this giant. And he says to the Philistine giant, he says, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. 
This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. What's up? <laughs> and this day, I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord doesn't save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hands. Man, facing a giant, David showed this amazing fearlessness. You think about that story, do you ever wonder like, how could this shepherd boy be so bold in the face of this giant that everybody was afraid of? Well, this is how, and he shares it here three different times. Three things, he says, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. He says, the battle is the Lord's. The Lord will give you into our hands. See, David, was fearless because his focus wasn't on that giant in front of him. His focus was on these three things. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Look, what giant are you facing today? What is that thing that's in front of you that makes you scared? In what ways is Jesus calling you to follow him that you're afraid to do. You know, as I faced the giant of cancer, I was afraid whenever, whenever I looked at that giant of cancer, whenever I, I thought about those quotes from the experts saying that you have 10 months left to live, those things scared me. But whenever I took my eyes off of those things and I looked at the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, I experienced confidence and courage and a lack of fear. This is what David explained in Psalm 27, the verse that I shared with you earlier. He said that overcoming fear was having the Lord as your light, having the Lord as your salvation, and having the Lord as the strength of your life. I wanna unpack each one of these three things real quick. What does it mean to have the Lord as your light? What does that mean practically? Not to just say it, but to actually have it happening in your life. Well, light gives us the ability to see. Having the Lord as your light then means that the Lord is giving you the ability to see. See, so often our fear is born out of incorrect vision. We think we see the future. We think we know what's going to happen, but it's not a reality. And when the Lord is our light, he gives us vision for the future, correct vision for the future. This is what the apostle Paul referred to as walking by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5, the apostle Paul said about himself and the other apostles, check this out. I mean, really think about this. He said boldly, we are always confident. Yeah. <laughs> we are always confident. Why? Because we walk by faith, not by sight. He said that, that as he is explaining all the difficulties and the, the bad things that they had to, to face as apostles, he said, but we're always confident because we're not walking according to physical sight and looking at things according to this world. We're walking by faith. We're walking by spiritual sight. The Lord is our light. Always confident because we walk by faith, not by sight. When the Lord is your light, you walk by faith. 
not by what the world tells you, not by what the experts tell you, but by what the Lord tells you. And when you're walking and going through life like that, you have a fearlessness about you. The second one, what does it mean to have the Lord as your salvation? That word salvation could also rightly be translated as deliverance. Having the Lord as your salvation means that you know the Lord will deliver you. Now, as I share that, and you apply that to your life and the situations that you're dealing with, and you start to think, what does it mean that the Lord will deliver me out of this situation that I'm afraid of? It's important that you understand what that word deliver means. The Apostle Paul, he wrote this for some very strange words to Timothy, his young protege. In 2 Timothy 3, he said to Timothy, he said, you, you've carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. It's like he was kind of stalking Paul in a way, like in a good way. But he like knew everything about Paul. He's like, and Paul's telling him, like, I know you know everything about me, including persecutions and afflictions, which happened to me, Paul writing, at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And this is the strange thing. Then Paul says, out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Now, if you're not aware... One of the afflictions and persecutions that Paul endured at Lystra that he mentions here was that he was stoned with rocks. I, we're in Colorado. I always have to make that clear. Okay, he was stoned with rocks. He was drug out of the city, thrown in the trash heap, and left for dead. And many biblical scholars believe that he actually did die, and God brought him back to life. That was the persecution and affliction that he faced at Lystra. But Paul said, out of them all, the Lord delivered me. What? <laughs> Does that sound like deliverance to you? Deliverance to me is like they're getting ready to throw these rocks at him and Clint Eastwood rides in on a horse, you know, and starts shooting people up and grabs Paul and takes him out of there and nobody hits him with a rock. That's what I think of when I think of deliverance. But Paul understood deliverance differently. See, that word deliver could also be translated, that Greek word that's used there, could also be translated as to draw one close to oneself. That's what Paul understood about deliverance. See, he understood that through all of his afflictions and persecutions, Jesus drew him closer to himself. And this is what led Paul to write these famous words in Romans chapter 8 when he said, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, so maybe he did die, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, things to come, height, depth, any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, this is what Paul understood about being delivered that there was nothing in the world, not even death itself, could separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So he's like, man, I'm always delivered. <laughs> I don't care what it is, because nothing can get in between me and the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you know that, that nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, it gives you a fearlessness. What is that thing that is causing you fear today? What is that thing that's out there that you're worried about, that you're concerned about, that you're anxious about? 
That thing cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the truth. Whether you choose to believe it or not, that's up to you. But that is the truth. That thing should not be able to cause fear in your life. Having the Lord as your salvation destroys fear. And the third thing, what is having the Lord as the strength of your life? What does it mean to have the Lord as the strength of your life? That word strength could also be translated as fortress or rock. I do not take this lightly, but in worship this morning, Vince, right, shared about and prayed about having the Lord as our rock. I believe there's some of you, if not everybody here, needs to hear this this morning. God's trying to speak to you. And you need to understand that the Lord is your rock, that he is your salvation. Psalm 91 is a very important psalm to me because it's a psalm about a person who faces a deadly disease and people are dying all around them, but they do not die of the deadly disease. I read it the morning before I went and got my diagnosis of cancer, believe it or not. <laughs> and it begins like this in Psalm 91. It says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of notice, the Lord... He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. See, this is the reality. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ here today, the Lord is your rock. But the problem with you and I is that we forget that. And we forget about that he is our fortress and that he is our strength. And we start to think that he's weak that he can't protect us, and that he can't help us. And the prophet Isaiah, he wrote about some people who forget that the Lord is their rock. And listen to how he describes a person who forgets that the Lord is their rock. In Isaiah 17, he says, you've forgotten the rock who can hide you. So you, your only harvest will be a load of grief and unrelieved pain. You hear that? That's what you're experiencing in your life is a load of grief and unrelieved pain. And the cause of that is that you have forgotten that the Lord is your rock. And so now you have all this grief and pain in your life because of that. Look, when we forget the Lord is our rock, we experience grief and unrelieved pain. But when we remember the Lord is our rock, we experience confidence and courage and fearlessness. Which one describes your life? Which one describes your life more? Grief and pain or confidence and courage and fearlessness? Look, if you have more grief and pain in your life, you need to remember, you need to know that the Lord is your rock. When the Lord is your strength and you know it, that destroys fear. How much of your life is touched by unhealthy fear? How much of your life is guided? And the decisions that you make are guided by unhealthy fear. If you're willing, God can deliver you from this fear right now. You know, the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 4. He says, There is no fear in love. But perfect love is the love of our God, casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord 
destroys fear and it's available to you right here, right now. Listen to God call to you through the prophet Isaiah again. This is God speaking to you. And if you're dealing with fear in one way, shape, or form, and we probably all are to some extent, listen to God speak to you this morning. He has spoken through the prophet Isaiah to you right here at Redemption Calvary this morning. God speaking, saying, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, for I am the Lord, there we have it again, the Lord, your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. What are you afraid of? God is speaking to you this morning, and he's saying, do not fear, for I am with you, do not fear, I will help you. Now, I would, as I close this morning, just encourage you to consider one last thing. Maybe the reason you are afraid is because you have yet to meet and have Jesus as the Lord in your life. What I mean is, maybe you've met and you have Jesus as your Savior, but you have still to meet him and own him as the Lord of your life. Remember the three keys to overcoming fear are not the savior, the savior, the savior. The three keys to overcoming fear are the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. See, when Jesus is the Lord of your life, and he is leading and guiding you through life, and you're saying, he's the one I want to follow. I want to do what he wants me to do. You will discover that even though you will reach those moments of being afraid, you will say, but I'm following the perfect one, the one who loves me, and I don't have to be afraid. When he is the Lord of your life, it gets rid of that fear. And right now, this morning, you can ask Jesus, you can start walking out of here with him, not just as the savior of your life, but the Lord of your life. I'm going to be available after service. My wife and I, will, we'll hang out up here. I would love to talk and pray with you. If you have anything that I've shared here this morning that's touched your heart or you want to share with me something or, or whatever, I'd love to pray with you. But I want to pray with all of us together right now and just give us an opportunity. Maybe you're here this morning. And you've had Jesus as the Savior of your life for a long time, but you have yet to have him as the Lord. Today could be the day. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll worship and take communion together. Lord, Lord, <laughs> Lord. And that, that word is just thrown around in church so much. Would you, by your Holy Spirit right now, just minister to our hearts individually and personally. What does that mean for my life? What does it mean to have you as the Lord of my life, not just the Savior of my soul, but the Lord of my current existence? Where do I go to lunch after church? What do I do when I go into work tomorrow? How do I handle my children when they get unruly and and, and, and I have to discipline them. What does it mean to have you as the Lord of my life? Lord, would you minister that to our hearts right now? 
And God, I just want to pray for anybody who came in here this morning just struggling with this, this unhealthy fear. Lord, there's something in front of them. They think they know for certain what's going to happen, but they don't. But they're afraid because they think they know. God, would you deliver them from that fear right now? Would you just shower them and overcome them with your perfect love? Would you show them and give them a vision of that cross where you sent your son to die for them? That because of that, the love that you have for them in Christ Jesus, our Lord, they don't have to be afraid of anything that's out there. God, would you just minister to those hearts and those souls, Lord, those minds that are struggling with fear and anxiousness and worry this morning and deliver them from that. God, we are so grateful that you just didn't leave us here trying to figure things out on our own, but your desire is to be our Lord, to lead us and guide us through this life. God, I pray that we would all take advantage of that this morning by saying, yes, I want Jesus as my Savior, and I also want Jesus as my Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.